1: Hey, it's Max. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you about someone who is making today's show possible. That someone is audible. And if you're listening to this show, that means you like to listen to things. And it also means that you like to listen to people who write things, talk about those things that they write. Which means that you would probably also like to listen to those people who write things, read the things that they write to you out loud, that is a totally convoluted way to explain what audible is because what audible is is uh the leading provider of audiobooks in the world they've got over 180,000 basically any book you would want is on there and lots of them are actually read by the authors themselves one that is top of mind for me at the moment tiny beautiful things cheryl strade's uh collection of her dear sugar columns that was one of my favorite interviews that i did last year and you can go listen to cheryl strade right now read you those columns what a gift Even better, you can do it for free, because Audible is giving our listeners a 30-day free trial. All you have to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. That's audiblepodcast.com slash longform. Try it out for free for 30 days. No risk, all reward. Thanks, Audible. Here's the show. Hello, and
2: welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by the long form
3: guys Max Linsky Aaron Lammer hey hey guys hey what's up guys I was just listening to this show last night what <laughs> <laughs> were you re-listening to one of your old interviews no I was listening to you guys really yeah, yeah that's I surprising just, yeah it was, ran uh, out of podcasts huh yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know I don't know what happened <laughs> <laughs> You turned it off halfway
1: through. I
3: was disgusted
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is you you are our number one critic <laughs> Uh, Evan. Yes. You did the interview that Aaron's not going to listen to this week. True. Hey, hey, hey. hey. He'll listen to it later, like months and months later, possibly. Maybe. Probably not. Uh, Who was it? It was
2: Grant Wall. Grant Wall is a reporter for Sports Illustrated. He's also uh, on TV sometimes doing soccer games. As you guys may or may not know, I'm quite a soccer fan. Uh, And I love Grant Wall partly because he was covering soccer way before it was uh, getting to be a pretty big sport uh, in the broader media, and also because he brings a real uh, long-form sensibility to uh, this kind of beat reporting and goes for big, longer stories, and uh, it was fun to talk to him.
1: If any of our uh, listeners, after uh, going through all these episodes, have been jonesing, wishing, dreaming that they could have taken McPhee's... uh, what is it? Nonfiction, as literary nonfiction, whatever the class is, mm-hmm. the, the legendary class at Princeton. This is another episode in which someone basically says, "I learned how to do this in that class."
3: If we if we do enough episodes, we're eventually going to uh, reverse engineer that entire course. <laughs> because I've asked everyone who, who's taken that course, I've sort of asked like, "Well, can you like give an example of what happened or like w- what was taught?" And everyone's given a completely different example. So we're slowly going to unpack the entire course. Don't go to Princeton. Just keep listening. <laughs> Uh, what about sponsors this week? As always, MailChimp helps us make this happen. Uh, MailChimp, one of the, I'll, I'll say one thing I like about MailChimp. Uh, if you got a little project getting off the ground, you're not sure where it's going, you can get a MailChimp list going for no money. You don't pay until you hit a certain number of subscribers. So there's nothing stopping you
1: from getting a MailChimp list today. And also, once you have tons of subscribers, which we do, yep. they manage it all perfectly. Like, I don't even understand how we send an email to, I don't know, what is it, like 100,000 people now?
2: You have 100,000 people on your mailing list? Oh, yeah, we
1: got a lot of people. Damn. Anyway, MailChimp handles it. That's how we do it.
2: While we're talking about things that we share with the world via yeah. our mailing list, uh, there's a new Atavist magazine story out. Oh, uh, It's called Hidden Damages. It's by M.R. O'Connor. Uh, she has deeply, deeply reported the story of a father who lost his daughter in a terrorist attack and then spent... Uh, A decade and a half, uh, all the way up to today, really uh, fighting for damages from the Republic of Iran uh, in compensation for that loss. It's a great story.
3: Where
1: can we find that, Evan?
2: You can find it at magazine.atavist.com.
1: Or right there in the show notes. Uh, Read that, but first, listen to Evan and Grant Wall.
2: Grant Wall, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I have been following your work for so long, partly because I used to be really interested in college basketball. For some reason, I'm not as much anymore. Me neither. I'm like, yeah, you're, like, you're off the beat. So, <laughs> And I'm an obsessive soccer fan, as cool. probably like podcast listeners to this podcast will know. And there was a point at which you felt like you were the only person in America writing about soccer in like a serious <laughs> way for like a serious publication. I wanted to first... Figure out how you got to that point to writing for Sports Illustrated. Um, Because I read in an article somewhere, an interview that you did somewhere, that you at some point earlier in your life told your friends that you were going to be a Sports (laughs) Illustrated writer.
4: So I got uh, for Christmas in 1982 from my parents a gift subscription to Sports Illustrated magazine.
2: Did it come with that football phone? They used to have
4: like a. It was not the year of the football phone. So I actually missed out on it. Yeah. uh, Unfortunately. Um, But. Uh, it became something I read cover to cover every week. We would get it on Thursdays in Kansas City, where I grew up, and uh, really that was sort of my way into this world. And even by a pretty early age, I knew I wasn't going to be a professional athlete. But um, you had
2: played sports, liked sports as a kid, or yeah, loved sports. You know, yeah.
4: growing up in Kansas, uh, KU basketball is a huge thing. Yeah, uh, so that's how I got into college basketball. You know, there were other sports, too. I was a huge Chiefs fan, huge Royals fan. You know, looking even in soccer terms, there were no outdoor teams at the time, but there was indoor soccer in Kansas City, and the fabled Kansas City Comets (laughs) were a team that uh, I followed quite closely. But I started reading Sports Illustrated every week. Felt like I got to know the writers. Yeah, You know, they had these unique voices, and guys like Frank DeFord became these mythical hero figures to me so I would totally fanboy out in college a couple of times when I got to meet Frank DeFord, and, and, uh, and he even allowed me to go interview him at his house during the 94 World Cup when I was a student, and he had no reason to let me come and do this and, and talk to him about soccer, which is not his favorite sport, by oh, the he's way. He's always shitting on soccer. Uh, often. He, he used to. Yeah, he still sort of does, but it, what's funny is he's sort of accepted now that soccer's become something in, in the U.S. He's just not a big MLS guy now. But he was really cool to to speak to me at that time, and by then, even toward the end of high school, I had told my friends, you know, I'd love to write for Sports Illustrated someday. I had never traveled outside the United States, I'd never been to the East Coast. First time I ever went was to uh, visit Princeton, uh, where I'd gotten in, I figured, well, I should check this place out, and my whole family went to the University of Kansas, I thought I was going to go there too. Yeah. Long story short, got a nice financial deal and went to Princeton where Frank DeFord went, where uh, a lot of writers that I really liked went. Guys like David Remnick. I wanted to sort of do things that might give me a chance to actually work for Sports Illustrated someday. That was like the end goal. Really?
2: Yeah. I don't know if I've ever talked to someone who like met like a life dream that they had so early so specifically.
4: It causes you to kind of rearrange your goals when it happens that early, you know? Uh, Yeah,
2: so how did you get a job at Sports Illustrated?
4: So I was probably a bit of a stalker, uh, (laughs) I think is the best way to put it, in a sort of uncomfortable way at times. Uh, Frank Deford taught a class at Princeton that was an application-only class um, Uh in the American Studies Department, and, like, there were 20 spots in the class, and I had learned like more than 200 people applied. And I in the end did not get in, because uh, you had to be a member of the American Studies Department, which, which I was not, uh-huh. as he explained to me after I sent him letter after letter. <laughs> when I say stalker, he may have forgotten this or put it out of his mind, but I, I don't forget that. And, and your letter uh, just said,
2: I want to be in your class, someday I will write for Sports Illustrated. Here's, this is my goal. Well,
4: I, I tried not to be a jerk about it, but I was just trying to explain to him how important it was to me. This is like my hero. Mm-hmm. who's teaching a class at my school, and I can't get in, mm-hmm. and did not get in. And I think he took pity on me and had lunch with me one day <laughs> when he was in town for the class and, and did that interview with me later on. But that was you know, one of the things I did in college to try and pursue all this stuff. Uh, I contacted Peter Carey, who was the number two guy at Sports Illustrated, another Princeton guy. You know, At least made some contacts as time went on and worked really hard you know, in doing writing on campus to try and get some good clips. But I struck out on internships in the summer, newspapers, everywhere, you know, didn't have any luck with that. Took some classes, thankfully, that allowed me to have some really good experiences with legit writers. Mm -hmm. The best one for me early on was one with Gloria Emerson, who kind of strangely became this semi-best friend of mine at... You know, this 70-year-old woman who was a former New York Times war correspondent Mm -hmm. in Vietnam. Mm. I don't know how much people know of Gloria Emerson these days. She passed away a few years ago, but just an amazing, tough New Yorker who started out in fashion writing Uh ended up becoming a war correspondent and a legendary one in Vietnam. I guess you could call her my mentor, I mean like, yeah. long story short, she ended up having a huge influence on, on me wanting to go into writing uh-huh. and long form and, uh-huh. and all that stuff. So she actually let me have a key to her place and a room where I could do all of my writing. Another course I took later on, in, or a magazine writing course in college, was with David Remnick uh who subbed in for john mcphee mcphee would teach this literature fat course two out of every three years
2: yeah it's funny like a, a number of people have been on the podcast who, who, took, who took that class like yeah. john seabrook talked about yeah. that class and then i've heard david remnick talk at points about when he took that class wow. when he was there i believe
4: yeah no he did and then yeah. Uh, I happened to get in, uh, I think this was 95. It was a year that McPhee was not teaching it, and Remnick was.
2: Oh, interesting.
4: And so I actually went down, and I have it here, my, my old n- spiral notebook from Humanities 440, <laughs> Literature of Fact. Uh, and I was looking through it today, and it's amazing to me how many of the things we talked about in that class 20 years ago about approaching writing a magazine story, reporting, organizing, writing a lead... Uh, getting everything together, um, uh, structure, all of that stuff is stuff that I use now and use all the time. Yeah, like I haven't really deviated from a lot of that.
2: It strikes me that that class is like a an expert class. Like it's a class like it's like if you were taking like pre-med classes and then some brain surgeon came in and taught you, like, the best brain (laughs) surgeon was basically like, here's how you do brain surgery, but then if you actually leave undergrad and get a job, like, no one's going to sign you that story that needs to be structured in the, like, A-G-G-H, like, the way that John McPhee requires, like, a huge... So, obviously, you, like, you got that knowledge, which you still use today, and then how long did it take it before you actually applied that knowledge to stuff you were able to work on?
4: Well... Thankfully, there were some opportunities earlier on, not for a big audience. One of the great things about having a seminar like that with a Remnick Remick, Fee, or a Gloria Emerson is that here are people who are being paid, basically, to care about you and what you're doing. (laughs) And they do care. I mean, they're they're not just doing it for the money. But I had not done anything to that point to actually deserve having someone of that stature... You know, work with me that closely on something. Mm-hmm. None of us had. yeah, And yet they do. And so that opportunity is something that I just didn't want to pass up. And so when I would take these writing seminars, honestly, I wouldn't focus that much on my other classes or some of my other like work that semester. I would focus mostly on these writing classes mm-hmm. and put a lot into it. I remember in Remnick's course, we had a big project a big magazine article we had to write ah, yeah right. by the end of the semester and i wrote mine on gloria emerson oh, which really? was kind of an interesting full circle thing huh. but here was a, someone who was a public figure she won a national book award in 1977 who admitted that she kind of couldn't leave the vietnam war behind yeah her. and that in essence became my story so th- that whole class just was able to kind of one of the few things that told me I want to do this yeah. for a living, but it's one thing to kind of want to do that and then to actually do it. But I got to use some of those techniques that we're talking about in some long-form stories. Summer of 94, the World Cup year in the United States, mm-hmm. by the way, Yeah, I was, between my sophomore and junior years of college, had won a scholarship that allowed me to spend three weeks in Argentina uh, and then three weeks in Boston, reporting on, as I pitched it, the cultures around the sports of soccer in Argentina and baseball in mm. Boston. Mm-hmm. Plus, Argentina was playing in the World Cup their first two games in Boston, yeah. so I went to those. Yeah, And this was the first time I'd ever left the United States. I actually have that notebook, too, I was going through this <laughs> really? morning, just, just to kind of like, it was fun to kind of go back and see the the journal entries I was writing, just like first day in Argentina, you know, Yeah, uh, and just was trying to find good stories to to write about and... So, I did a number of things in Buenos Aires. The most interesting one was I traveled overnight with the hardcore fans of Boca Juniors, yeah, and all these Argentines are telling me, "What are you doing? you're going to die? These people will kill people, and we had to travel overnight because they had problems with the cops stopping them if they travel during the day. We go to Rosario for a game against uh, Rosario Central um and i they kind of welcomed me into their little culture and I ended up writing about that, mm-hmm. then went to Boston, did a lot of stuff with the like Red Sox and baseball culture in Boston, and used these techniques that I had sort of learned in, in Remnick's course of, you know, when you're reporting, get all of your stuff into one file, you yeah. know, all of your interviews, you know, organize it, yeah. you know, follow your instincts on how many people you talk to, how much reporting you do before you're, you're ready to go to write write a lead section first and, and going back through McPhee's notes it was interesting because his whole thing was your lead section your lead should have should shine a light through the rest of the story uh-huh. which I thought was a cool turn of phrase Yeah, for McPhee he would get so sort of blocked by writer's block that he would tell stories about tying himself to a chair
2: mm-hmm.
4: you know to actually get the writing done but, and this shows what a horrible imitator I was. The first couple of years when I was writing, I would literally <laughs> tie myself to a chair. Writing was gonna be an intense thing, but it was gonna be a really rewarding thing. And that trip to Argentina and Boston that summer and, and the writing that resulted from it, you know, I, I knew I wanted to do this. Is that what got you the job at Sports Illustrated initially? I think it helped. I started out as a fact checker. I got an offer in the spring of my senior year of college. Uh, from Bambi Wolf who was the chief of reporters and who I would argue has had a bigger influence on Sports Illustrated as a whole than maybe any other person of the last 20, 30 years because she hired so many young writers who ended up being writers at Sports Illustrated. Yeah, I decided to go to Sports Illustrated as a fact checker. I was going to give myself three years. If I'm not a full-time writer after three years, I'm going to get a newspaper job somewhere.
1: Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put Grant and Evan on hold for just a second and uh, tell you a little bit about our sponsors this week. First up is Squarespace. And if you have an idea for a website that you've been meaning to do, maybe it's a portfolio for your work. uh, Maybe it's something for your business. Maybe you just want to test out an idea and see if you can uh, take the world by storm. If you need a website, you should use Squarespace. Here's why. You don't need to know a lick of code. The tools are super intuitive. You can make a beautiful website without one stitch of code. They've got great 24 7 support. So if you hit a snag, you probably won't. But if you do, uh, they've got your hand, they're going to hold it. They're going to help you through your problem. And it looks great on any device, all the platforms. Squarespace stuff just works. That's the deal. Also part of the deal, you can start a trial right now. No credit card required. Go build the site that you've been thinking about. If you do end up wanting to use Squarespace, use the code LONGFORM when you make your first purchase. You'll get 10% off. You'll be showing your support of the show, which we really appreciate. And if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain name. So pretty good deal. If you got a website you've been thinking about, Squarespace, build it beautiful. Also sponsoring the show this week, the latest novel from number one New York Times bestselling author, Karen Marie Monning. It's called Feverborn. It's in the Fever series. And uh, I'm just going to read you this description because it's going to do it way more justice than I can. Mac, Barron's, Royden, and Jada are back, and the stakes have never been higher or the chemistry hotter. Hurtling us into a realm of labyrinth, intrigue, and consummate seduction, Feverborn is a riveting tale of ancient evil, lust, betrayal, forgiveness, and the redemptive power of love. Once a normal city possessing a touch of ancient magic, Dublin is now a treacherously magical city with only a touch of normal. And on those war-torn streets, Mac will come face-to-face with her most savage enemy yet, herself. Go check out this book. How could you not check out this book after that description? It's called Feverborn. It's the latest one in the Epic Fever series. It's by Karen Marie Monning. And uh, we thank them for sponsoring the show. You can learn more at feverbornbook.com. Okay, here's Grant and Evan.
2: Did you like fact-checking? I was also a fact-checker. Ooh,
4: I didn't love it, Yeah, but I had a huge respect for it.
2: It's not pleasant.
4: It is kind of a, a thankless job in the sense of people only really notice when you screw up, but you also got to see process and how a, a great writer works. You know, I remember fact-checking Bill Nack's story on Roy Williams, probably in 98, 99, and just seeing how he went about what he did was hugely educational mm-hmm. and talking with him as the story went through the the edit process. So, you know, those experiences were pretty amazing.
2: And within the three years, you did you start to get assignments and start to find your way into, into writing?
4: Yeah, I did. Uh, it happened faster than three years, actually. So, you know, just little things came up. Uh, my first story ever was on the Howard University soccer team from... Uh, the early 1970s and this was obviously many years after this team had played but it was a story about how they were the first team from a historically black college to win an NCAA Division I title in any sport Hmm. and this was a team at Howard mostly made up of guys from the Caribbean guys from Africa a few black Americans and they very controversially had their title first title stripped from them and it became a real big thing with uh, accusations of racism at the nca
2: their title was supposedly stripped because they had foreign they players or
4: had something? had some the test scores that didn't meet the NCA's standards but some of these yeah, guys were from countries where they didn't even get the test and, uh-huh. and were like really good students in school and, and it was it was weird yeah and then after it was stripped they actually came back in 74 and won the title again and kept it this time yeah, and it's a so story. it was a good story in fact they're doing um, I think they're doing a 30 for 30 on it now like I was now just about them. to say it
2: sounds like a movie
4: and you know those guys the captain of the team are still in the DC area and, and uh, there was, it was a really significant thing in the sense of at the time they were talking about this guys who ran things at the university would speak to the team and they're like "This is you guys are a representation of the slave trade in the sense that there's the the triangle of the caribbean africa and the united states that you're this triangle of blackness you represent more than just a team and they looked at themselves as representing that more than that as as did people on campus and for that to be my first story i felt That's pretty good about it pretty great first story uh, and for it to be a soccer story because at that time i had no idea i would become a full-time soccer person eventually um yeah, so it kind of went like that. There were a couple of interesting stories that came up where they would let me out of fact-checking duties for a couple of days. Uh-huh. I went out to Wyoming, uh, this tiny town called Evanston, Wyoming, and did a story on the Jamaican bobsled team, basically trying to find a way to get back to the Olympics in 98. But this was like the number two team. They had one guy from the famous team they made the movie off of, yeah. which they themselves had made no money off of. Oh, and so yeah. here were the Jamaican guys trying to train, but like working for Domino's delivery in this tiny town in Wyoming that was all white. Yeah. And what was cool was, was after the story came out, they got some funding and actually ended up going to the Nagano Olympics. So a couple of stories like this, um, in addition to the fact checking, like by, I guess one year into my time there, I became a full-time writer. So you started
2: on the college basketball beat? Is that where you started? Or did they, did you have a beat at the beginning? Or I had to beat,
4: but I was I had been fact checking for it. So, you know, I was basically when I was writing, I would I would do these short little one page, you know, news of the week type things inside of yeah. college basketball, which were fun for me because I was able to travel around and go to games at Kentucky where I'd never been before, or North Carolina or and meet people and build sources and relationships and and I would do soccer on the side. Getting soccer in the magazine was really tough. And yeah. You know, the 94 World Cup had definitely been something they covered, but that was a gigantic event in the United States. And so when I got there in 96, one of the few things we actually covered in the magazine was the NCA Soccer Final Four, Yeah, which isn't that big at this point. We don't even really cover it much anymore. And then 98 was probably like the big change for kind of me doing longer stuff. That was the year that John Wortham and I pitched a story on out of wedlock kids in sports
2: i went back and and was reading that that piece and um i'm interested how how it came about i mean i feel like there was a very delicate thing in there where uh you were kind of delving into this issue which was very much like uh in a way accusatory you've got these these players particularly basketball players there are a lot of basketball players in there who have a lot of out of wedlock children and then there was this part where it sort of like stood back and said like this could easily be seen through a lens of race, and it shouldn't be. And I'm interested when you do that kind of story for Sports Illustrated, sort of, uh, how does an institution like that approach that sort of thing?
4: All along, I sort of thought that because we were these 24 and 25-year-old guys that they would probably give the info to some other better writer who would then write oh, really? it. Yeah. Didn't happen. They they trusted us. They They let us do it. And I think working with John on that was just a really positive experience because i think we both were sensitive to the racial aspects of the story but also knew that it wasn't a black only thing i mean larry bird and his daughter and yeah that that was a big part of that story we literally holed up for a week in a small office in new york and and wrote that story together sometimes co-byline stories are done differently where one guy will write and then another person will come in afterward. But mm-hmm. this was literally just the two of us sitting at a screen together and writing. Whoa. Um, That's intense. You know, we had guys like Sean Kemp who were clearly, they had some pretty egregious examples. Um, I forget how many kids he had with how many women, but I think it was like maybe nine with eight. And we got letters afterwards saying it's actually more than that. You know? Oh, wow. Um, I remember they put a two-year-old kid on the cover, Greg Miner's son. Really well done... Uh, portraits taken for the story but i got to admit when i first saw the two-year-old on the on the front of the magazine saying where's daddy i was like oh my gosh Uh, i don't know if that's what i was thinking of i'm still curious about what this kid now thinks about being on the cover of sports illustrated because he would be how old now probably 19 yeah so maybe not a bad idea to try and track him down to find out yeah yeah
2: i feel like that story was in some ways foreshadowing for some of the stuff you see now around like the NFL and Ray Rice and domestic abuse i mean it wasn't about domestic abuse although there was a little bit in there i think a couple of the players had been accused or or convicted of or something but um now there's this question of like are these are publications whether it's SI and their connections or ESPN in some ways like beholden to these leagues in various ways and like can't report on them and that seemed like almost like a simpler time in some ways, where yeah. was it a big deal to report so negatively on the sports?
4: I, I don't think the NBA was entirely thrilled with the story, as I recall. I would imagine not. I remember the week it came out, I was not credentialed for a Knicks playoff game, hmm. one of the rare NBA games I was assigned to cover. But I've never had anyone at Sports Illustrated tell me that I can't write something. Yeah, You'll never have, at least I've never had, Anyone say to me we can't write about this because of an advertiser relationship or because of some deal on the business side? Uh huh. And you, you also,
2: you know, you wrote this book about David Beckham and his experience in, at, at the LA Galaxy. Uh, and that for that book, you had uh, access that I felt like after reading it, uh, they probably regretted giving you. <laughs> You You have to ask them on that one, but maybe. But I'm curious how you negotiate. I mean, how do you get that kind of access? David Beckham was the most famous athlete in the world. Probably, maybe you could argue about Michael Jordan or someone else, but one of the most famous athletes, superstars, celebrities in the world. And it seemed like you were completely inside this organization, both talking to him, but also all these business people around it. How did that come about?
4: A lot of things came together on that one. Um, So... Beckham comes in 2007 that summer to play in L.A. And it's one of the biggest stories of that summer, not just in sports. I mean, it was crazy the attention yeah. that was being paid like and on it, Entertainment Tonight and, and just in general. Uh, with at this Beckham, point, you've
2: been covering soccer for, for Sports Illustrated for a while. For a long
4: time. Yeah. So I was doing, my first World Cup was 98 in France, which is a wonderful experience. And then Beckham signs with L.A. in early 07. They were interested, Beckham's people, in doing a big SI story and it ended mm-hmm. being a cover story um, of him arriving that they mm-hmm. were going to participate in. And mm-hmm. that was the second story I'd done on Beckham. I'd done a big like, 10-page magazine story in '03, sort of introducing him to wider America. Right, yeah. And you know that had gone well, had a really nice long interview with him and a bizarre interview with Victoria, who I kind of love, actually. <laughs> uh, I'm doing this interview with Beckham and then her publicist says, you know, do you wish to speak to Victoria? And I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? Because they're doing like photo shoots, at the, like in New York. So he was doing a photo shoot for Sports Illustrated, she was doing one for some celebrity magazine. Uh-huh. And she's standing there and I go over and and say hello. And and so I my first question was, so how do you think you most influenced David over the years? She looks at me and she's like, well, I think I've really changed his dress sense. And I go, what do you mean by that? She's like, well, you know, he used to wear his pants really high. Now he wears them much lower. And, and I looked at her, and I was wondering if, like, there was a joke. If I was, if I was the joke, I was <laughs> yeah. the joke, basically. <laughs> um, and actually, it got a little better from there. So that story worked out fine. The story in 07 worked out fine. And then I got approached by a publisher, Crown, that was interested in having me write a book about Beckham's first year, first half year in LA. So
2: they came to you with that idea?
4: Yeah, they did. So I was living in Baltimore, but covering this team in Los Angeles while also working full time for Sports Illustrated. Why were you living in Baltimore? Uh, My wife was there. She's a doctor, so she was at Johns Hopkins. Ah. So I started following uh, Beckham and the Galaxy. And I think part of it was, I had a good relationship with Beckham, had a really good relationship with everyone at the Galaxy that a lot of people i known for a long time mm-hmm. and they had just seen this cover story that was great publicity for the LA Galaxy and I think that's where that access for the book kind of came from.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Even then, even though I had a good relationship with Beckham's people, they did not want to give me one-on-one access to Beckham for the book. They were cool for Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Uh, but like they indicated that like it would, take like a million dollars to get Beckham to participate one-on-one for the book, and even then they would have control of the book.
2: They literally said, you will pay us in order to get access to this Because
4: their person. view of it was, and maybe this is a very British view, was a book is either authorized or unauthorized. Mm-hmm. There's no in-between. Hmm. In their terminology, this was going to be an unauthorized book. It's still a bit of a miscalculation, I think, on their part, because everyone else did talk to me one-on-one mm-hmm. over the next year and a half mm-hmm. you know Beckham's voice is all throughout the book one because I was able to use thanks to Sports Illustrated my interviews uh, I with see. him for SI uh-huh. and he did press conferences before and after every game so I was able to ask questions it just wasn't one-on-one
2: yeah I see
4: and then there was all this drama going on behind the scenes and uh, I was putting in the time to to be around and set up interviews, and guys like Alexi Lawless and Tim Lywicki and Landon Donovan, um, and Alan Gordon and Chris Klein. All these guys within the team were regularly talking to me, and to their credit, continued talking to me even when they weren't doing well on the field.
2: Yeah, and there was turmoil all around it. I mean, that was the that's the thing that strikes me so much about that book is that. If you told me in advance of you writing that book, I'm doing a, a book about the first year of David Beckham in L.A., I would say I don't know. Like that could be a really, really boring book because, <laughs> like, uh, he because he's he's so he's such a celebrity yeah. that you're never going to get anything good, and no one's going to say anything bad about him because he's making all the money and whatever. And so the actual stuff in that book, I just imagined you doing the reporting and just like, just like tell me more, tell me more. But how did you? I mean, the players were so honest with you. That's what surprises me. They told you stuff that they shouldn't, they probably shouldn't have.
4: Probably. I think part of it is, is that U.S. soccer and MLS weren't quite in the same position then, or now to be honest, but especially then Mm -hmm. as like the NFL or the NBA today. And so if you're a journalist, you can get more access.
2: Mm -hmm. It's almost like a business book in some ways, not a a certain type of business book, but there's a lot in there about just like the business of sports and Mm -hmm. the... Ownership and, like, who's actually running the show and the celebrity culture and all this stuff. Do you feel cynical about the business of sports?
4: I don't, uh, which is, I think, good. I guess I understand the game. Um, I also understand that there's a lot of good people who play the game Mm. and a lot of good intentions. You know, I'm around the soccer community in the U.S. more than anything, and uh, there's not much cynicism in the soccer community. One of the reasons I wanted to push to cover soccer full-time back in '09. when I finally did was because I like covering the people involved.
2: Do they feel different from people in other professional um, sports? So to like, me, yeah.
4: you know, it's a little bit like what we were talking about earlier where the variety of stories in soccer globally because the volume is so big is huge. Yeah, That's, that's what I want. I want to tell stories. And the American soccer player, both male and female, they're pretty great to work with you know i mean there's not a lot of divas in this sport they want to talk to you yeah and maybe that's because they've experienced that this sport is not as big here as it is in other countries and they're a little more humble
2: but there's also this uh kind of it seems like there's a flip side to that which is In the U.S., you can talk to, you can go interview these players and they kind of want to be interviewed. But you also do stories about these global stars, like Mario Balotelli or Luis Suarez or people like that, who you're kind of maybe introducing them to an American audience that doesn't know them. But they are the, like, huge super celebrity who never wants to talk to anyone. Does it feel like getting, like, blood from a stone to get (laughs) anything out of these people when you sit down? Like... When you prepare you know, to, to profile Mario Balotelli, like how do you go about saying, okay, how am I going to get a full story out of this? It's
4: a challenge and it's not. So one thing I've learned over the years is the top European soccer figures, whether they're players, whether they're coaches, whether they're teams, they want to be bigger in the U.S. Huh. And as a result, they're willing to often provide access to U.S. media that they don't provide to much of their own oh, really? media huh. and that's something i've really tried to leverage over the years and it's worked out on a on a lot of occasions um you know with balotelli i'm a little bummed out his career hasn't taken off the last couple of years like it, it looked like it would have been yeah but i found him i've always found him to be a fascinating figure and started laying the groundwork for a story with, uh, on him after the Euro 2012 tournament, um, where he had two goals in the semis. They beat Germany, got to the final. And you're like, wow, this guy isn't just about potential and, and yeah. lunatic behavior.
2: Yeah, he was like breaking out as you a know, player. This yeah. guy,
4: but he also had this human story where if you remember that game, he went to hug his white mother, his adoptive mother in the crowd uh, after the game and it was a really cool image that sort of went against a lot of what we had seen in the British tabloids about Balotelli during his time at Man City especially Yeah. is he a knucklehead? Yeah, yeah he is at times but I also think he's a pretty innocent guy and the knucklehead behavior that he's done is pretty harmless and so I had seen a couple of instances where he had given interviews. Not many, because he didn't. And uh, what kind of came through was he spoke better English than anyone, just about anyone realized. Uh-huh. And he was a lot more thoughtful than anyone gave him credit for. Yeah. And so I'm like, that might be a really good magazine story.
2: Yeah, he's got a crazy backstory. I mean, he's a
4: yeah adopted by uh, a family in Russia. Was born in Italy, but not allowed uh, to be a citizen until he turned. I think it was 18. Right. Due to laws in Italy, you know, has had to deal with a lot of racism in a country that has a lot of racism still, especially connected to soccer.
2: Yeah. So when you say laying the groundwork, what does that technically entail for like setting up to try to get some kind of profile like this landed?
4: So keep in mind that my first contact, this was year 2012 during the tournament. I contacted his agent, a guy named Mina Raiola, who is like the Scott Boris of Europe.
2: hmm and it's Mino, Scott Bors, for those who don't know, is like the super agent of sports yes. in America.
4: And Mino Raiola himself is probably worthy of a magazine story because he's like from this like family that had a pizza store and or a restaurant uh and he made himself the biggest agent in European soccer just about. So Mino's response was uh, I got his email, sent him the pitch, and he's like it has to be a cover. And I was like, ah, "I can't do that. You know, we don't promise covers." And so we kind of went back and forth for a long time. And then, so that was 2012. And so the cover didn't happen until August, I think, of 2013. And Balotelli had moved to AC Milan. Uh And uh, I'm pretty tight with one of their directors there, a guy named Umberto Gandini, who loves American sports, had read my Beckham book. And really nice man who uh, worked with Mino and Mario to get them to agree. Uh to do this and it also saying like look this has a really good chance of being on the cover we just can't guarantee it right yeah and so we met up in miami in uh, august of 2013 when the team was over here and did this crazy photo shoot on a pool at this miami hotel that made it look like he was standing on the surface of the water yeah and i remember having to persuade mario to do this and i had just met the guy like two minutes earlier right (laughs) and so my first task is to help jeffrey salter a terrific photographer convince mario to stand on this clear uh plexiglass surface on a in the pool Uh uh-huh in in the sun for about 45 minutes to pose for these photos.
2: And then you get what? You get like a set amount of time with him?
4: And then I was gonna get time for an interview, which was I think promised at 30 minutes and went to more like 45, 50.
2: Hmm. Do you prepare like an opener? Or do you just kind of go with the flow, I'm gonna meet this guy and chat and like I'm gonna rely on my natural charm? Or are you sort of like, I'm gonna try to start here and maybe he'll open up?
4: I think one of the first things I said to him was, cause I'd followed his Twitter feed, knew what he was into he's big into president obama of all people but i mean maybe not that surprising yeah. uh, and and yeah. i said to him i know you're into president obama there's a decent chance that he might read this story <laughs> right you know yeah he, he kind of perked up i don't think i was deliberately <laughs> misleading him there was a chance it'd um, be great if
2: you just used that with every player <laughs> You know that uh, President Obama <laughs> might
4: might read this story. I just want to let you know before we start and um, and so it was great. His English was wonderful. Um, he was able to really dig deep, I thought, and talked a lot in a very thoughtful way about racism, what he had experienced in Italy and elsewhere, what he symbolized, that he was aware of much more than people. Thought that he, he kind of led on, and I, one thing I was really glad about when people read the story, a lot of them said, "Wow, I didn't realize that he was that thoughtful."
2: Yeah, while we're talking, I'm going to ask you one more question about profiles. While we're talking about profiles. Um, because I was reading back these pair profiles, one of which is very famous, which is the one you did of LeBron James when he was a junior in high school. Right. So he was 17 years old, and it was this big deal. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and what was the cover line? That The he, Chosen One. The Chosen One, which he later got as a tattoo, I saw you I give said. credit
4: to Greg Kelly, the SI editor, who came up with that cover line because he got as a tattoo.
2: That's influence. <laughs> uh, that's actually what I want to ask you about, because a couple years later, you did a profile of Freddie Adu, mm-hmm. who was... First, you wrote about when he was 13, and then when he was 14, starting out. And if you look at these two people, the thing it was making me think a lot about was sort of like the influence of these stories over these people's lives. So clearly right. you had one who was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, hyped uh, in a way that no teenager maybe should be, right. and could completely handle it, and is now you know a famous sports figure and player. And then another one who it seems like maybe couldn't handle it, or right. at least was not necessarily worthy of it, and now is in a different place, still playing sports, but at a completely different level. Right. Do you think about the influence that this, these stories will have on the people themselves? Yeah. And, like, especially Freddie Adu as a teenager, like, did, or both of these guys as teenagers, did you think about what does it mean to, like, put these guys in this magazine?
4: I think the longer I've been in this business and the older I've gotten, the more you really do realize how much national media, international media attention impacts a young athlete. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you mentioned this because in the context, this is right around the same time uh, these stories were being done on LeBron James and Freddie Adu. Mm -hmm. One guy makes it, the other guy doesn't. And there were some similarities in those stories in that you almost have to have the obligatory two paragraphs where you throw in the caveats of like, you know, it's not guaranteed that he's gonna make it, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But there's a reason you're writing the story. And so you try to just find people who you trust, uh, who see the talent and can tell you about where the potential is and, and where the pitfalls might be mm-hmm. uh, and and try to strike a balance. I remember when they decided to put LeBron on the cover As a junior in high school, it was during the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake, and I was surprised that they would do a non-Olympic cover during that time. But then you also... I'd spent a lot of time with LeBron for that story. The timing seemed right. He'd had a huge uh, ABCD camp the previous summer and uh, had a really good experience. Flew into Akron and uh, met him and his buddies... They all piled into my rental car and we drove to Cleveland from Akron for an NBA game mm-hmm. that had Michael Jordan in it. Yeah, and Jordan hits a buzzer beater to win at the end. Did
2: you know that was your lead when you when they got into the car with you?
4: Uh, usually, you have a pretty good idea on uh, on a lead when you witness it or hear it told or or what have you. Kind of you know, an instinctual thing. And after the game, Jordan comes out to talk to LeBron and it wasn't the first time they'd met but like I'm just kind of lurking and getting seen stuff and there was so much going on there because you had the guy who was actually bringing Jordan out to meet LeBron was William Wesley World Wide West the kind of most famous uh, connector in the basketball world in the United States not everyone really knows what he does but he knows everybody yeah so For me, I think I said this in the story, it was like that picture of of John F. Kennedy meeting a young Bill Clinton, you know, where it was that kind of a vibe. You know, LeBron was that good, Mm -hmm. you know, and I remember having Danny Ainge tell me in that story like there are only a couple of players in the NBA I would not tr- I would trade him for now
2: I mean you put in the the obligatory paragraphs like well he could turn out to be a bust but did yeah. you think if he turns out to be a bust and they put him on the cover I am going to look like a fool
4: <sighs> there's some of that I remember being we had gone to a McDonald's drive through on the way to Cleveland and I remember just kind of offhandedly saying LeBron I was like there you know, there's a chance you could be on the cover of Sports Illustrated here <laughs> and he got this kind of look on his face and I don't think you really understand in that situation what how it will change your life, at least especially then, until it happens. Mm-hmm. There's a documentary film that he was a part of about that time uh, that he talks about the impact. Mm. It was big, but he was able to to get through it. He had a crazy senior year uh, where he got suspended for accepting jerseys as gifts, you know, throwbacks and. And there's a lot of controversy, and, and that was a lot of stuff for him to, to fight through. But I remember writing in that story, like, he might even get a $20 million shoe deal. Well, it was like a $90 million deal <laughs> when he signed it, you know? So, um, you know, it was just, you compare that to Freddie Adu, and, and for the story in 04, I remember going to Tampa where they were doing a photo shoot, a TV commercial shoot, with Freddie Adu and Pele. The highest paid player in the league was 14, and so a lot of people got carried away yeah. on that one. And so clearly, there's an example that it's not guaranteed the success, and the attention hurt Freddie Adu. Yeah, uh, who was younger, we think, than uh, than LeBron <laughs> was by by a couple years. It, it's just a a sad story in many ways, I think, with Freddie. And for me, like, I've always thought he's actually a pretty good guy. I, I went back and did a story on him in 2010 when he was in Greece for the magazine, spent some time with him. He's always been a pretty good guy to hang out with, go out to dinner with. Um, You just wish that he had had more opportunities and had taken advantage of those opportunities at club level to to build a career. Yeah.
2: We talked about, you know, you had a, a goal as when you were younger of writing for Sports Illustrated, and you achieved that goal, like, relatively young... Do you have a next aspirational goal in terms of your writing or your journalism? Like, do you want to move beyond sports at some point? Is there sports for the rest of your life that you could be content
4: covering? You know, I, I don't, Know exactly uh, where it's going to go from here. My FIFA presidential campaign didn't exactly work out. Oh, in yeah, the we end, didn't talk in, about that. In 2011, you ran for president of FIFA. That again was sort of prescient. <laughs> that was before all of these takedown
2: uh, yes. scandals.
4: Yeah. And it was fun. I caused them to change their rules where to run for FIFA president now you literally have to be an insider and, and have like two of the previous five years in football administration, soccer yeah. administration, which is actually a problem because if you had. An, an outsider, like a Kofi Annan, who I think would be great to take over a new FIFA, according to their rules right now, he cannot run. Right. I had a good experience doing it in 2011. It was fun. It, uh, it got people to thinking, I think, why does no one ever run against this set bladder guy? And really put out some of the like, honestly common sense issues um, that needed to be considered about making FIFA cleaner. Or trying to, or or getting it at a point where it wasn't this kind of joke of an organization. Although the only thing
2: that could have happened was that you could have won and then gotten caught up in the corruption, and you yourself could be in prison right now. <laughs> have you thought about that? Uh, c- it could have been
4: I was going to do a WikiLeaks on FIFA. That was one of my campaign promises. Put everything out there. Um, I had some fun conversations with people like the Iceland Soccer Federation president who was very nice and actually listened to me and then decided not to nominate me.
2: So you're not going to be FIFA president. Do you have any sense of where where you want to go journalistically in 10 years or something like that?
4: I guess part of it is that I don't I've never had sort of uh aside from like this I want to go to Sports Illustrated thing. I never would have predicted I would do soccer full time. Yeah. And I and that's happened, you know. I'd love to say this was all planned and inevitable, but it really wasn't. Uh, the sport has grown a ton. It's got a lot more growing to do, I think. Uh, I don't know if soccer is ever going to be the NFL in the US, but it's certainly- I hope not. Yeah, seriously. But it's it's definitely gotten bigger, uh, and I really enjoy it. I don't follow a lot of other sports at this point. Even college basketball, I, I couldn't tell you much at all about what's going on. I enjoyed covering that sport. Hmm. My wife doesn't like sports, so I don't really spend much off time following it. And covering soccer if you want to be on top of what's happening in the soccer world you you really don't want to shortchange your readers viewers and you need to spend a lot of time being on top of stuff yeah potentially I guess I could see writing about some non-sports topics but I'm really enjoying writing about sports right now
2: alright well thank you for coming on the podcast I hope you keep writing about sports because I, I need you to keep writing about <laughs> soccer
4: <laughs> for the very foreseeable future I will be writing about soccer thanks for having me
2: That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. My guest was Grant Wall. I appreciate him taking the time to come in. Thanks, as always, to all of our sponsors, especially MailChimp. Thanks to our editor, Jenna weiss Thanks to our intern, Courtney Harrell. And we will see you next week.